This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to A Deeper Look here on Federal News Network. Each episode, we focus on a single federal agency to better understand its mission, its impact on the public, and the people who work here. Now your host, Joe Paiva. Thanks for joining us. We are very happy to have my friend and former colleague, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Dennis Alvord, with us today. Dennis, thanks for being here. It's great to see you. Hey, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, It's really a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to fill you in on what's been going on at the U.S. Economic Development Administration and, and share with your audience all the good work that's going on here. Well, great. Hey, before we dive in, I, I just think we should probably set the stage because most people probably are not familiar with EDA. All right. When I left 2018, it was kind of a, a, a smaller agency. I think you guys that year had put out maybe $300 million in grants or something. And and this year we're looking at, what, $4.5 billion in grants that you've been authorized to give out. That's a, that's a big deal. You want to kind of just... We'll dig into the details later, but you want to give people some kind of sense for what's driven that and how it's happened? Yeah. Well, and even maybe before we get there, just to provide a little bit of context, you know, EDA is comparatively small federal agency with a really big mission, right? We're charged to support economic development across the country in the nation's most economically distressed areas and regions. You're absolutely correct. We do affect that mission through strategic grant investments. Historically, we've had a relatively modest budget. You know, our our annual budget is around $300 million a year. But over the last several years, uh, we have seen exponential growth in that budget through large transformative supplemental appropriations from Congress. And that actually started back in 2018 and 2019, where we had back-to-back supplemental appropriations to support recovery from natural disasters. So we saw $600 million in, in each of those years significantly greater than our our annual budget appropriation. And then, as you mentioned, um, in, in 2020, beginning with the pandemic economic recovery efforts, we saw $1.5 billion under the CARES Act. And in, in 2021, an additional $3 billion under the American Rescue Plan to support pandemic economic recovery efforts. So that's really, really significant expansion. I mean, in, in, in 2020 alone, that's 10x our normal operating budget. That's pretty wild. Well, we're going to get into some of that a little bit later and in more detail. I think... Um, to be fair, I have to start with the same question I ask everybody, right? You're on Taxpayer Shark Tank, and you have three minutes to convince American taxpayers why they should give $4.5 billion to the Economic Development Agency this year. Go. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, as I said, we've got an expansive, expansive mission at EDA, and we play a critically, critically important role in helping to boost businesses and job growth in communities where Americans across the country live. We invest in everything from planning and technical assistance to infrastructure 
to leverage existing regional assets and support the implementation of economic development strategies that make it easier for businesses to start and grow. Without EDA assistance, many of our nation's most economically distressed communities, you know, those that might be suffering from the downturn of an entire economic sector, such as what we see uh, transpiring in coal country, or those that may have been impacted by natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, wildfires, or just a, an overall industry downturn of some kind, they would not be able to move forward with their plans and rebuild and, and, and build back stronger without the assistance of agencies like EDA. And in addition to our role supporting the most disadvantaged communities, we also know that innovation is the backbone of our economy and that all citizens should be empowered to pursue the dream of entrepreneurship and be able to carve out their own paths to prosperity. And as such, we are committed to helping lead tech-based economic development initiatives and accelerate high growth economic opportunities for citizens across the entire country so that we can support the next generation of leading companies in the United States. Bottom line, we help our nation's communities implement their plans to create economic opportunity. So that, that is an expansive role for the EDA. I, so I noticed when I was going through my notes preparing for this interview, I noticed there was a section in the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act this year that talked about your specific programs under the Stevenson-Wilder Act. And I couldn't help catching the $500 million for the Regional Technology and Innovation Hubs, which kind of sounded pretty Chips Act-ish to me. Can you kind of dive in a little more detail on your role in helping – the U.S. compete against China or, or what's actually happening with that $500 million? Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're absolutely correct that, you know, late last year, President Biden signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 into law, and that included um, some extensive uh, new resources for EDA that were just recently authorized under the Chips and Science Act. It included $1.6 billion per EDA in fiscal year 2023 overall, including our regular programs as well as some uh, new programming to support uh, uh, economic development activities. That included $500 million for regional technology and innovation hubs, it included $200 million for a recompete pilot program, and it included some increased funding for some of our traditional programs that are also supported under the Stevenson-Weidler Act, $50 million for our Build to Scale program, and $2.5 million to support our STEM Talent Challenge. Um, and you know, in combination, that's going to be some really, really impactful programming. You know, we've never had $752 million authorized under Stevenson Weidler in the past to be able to support this type of program. So that, that's really, really exciting. And that complements the work that's going to be happening under our traditional authorizing statute, the Public Works and Economic Development Act of 1965, where we received $363.5 million uh, for our regular programming and an additional $500 million 
to support uh, long-term economic recovery from natural disasters that have occurred over the last couple of years. So in total, uh, we've got a pretty big year ahead of us in 2023 to be able to support this programming as well. Now you mentioned uh, national defense and, and indeed like the, the idea behind regional technology and innovation hubs is one of the lessons that we learned as a result of the pandemic is that it's critically important from a health perspective, from a supply chain perspective, from an economic security perspective for us to have robust supply chains and domestic production. Um, and this funding uh, will help us to be able to support those things by supporting the next generation of innovative technology companies that can bolster our, our global in addition to our national competitiveness. That's probably a great place for us to take a break. Uh, when we come back from break, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Dennis Albert and I will talk a little bit more about how specifically these programs impact the American people on a daily basis. Welcome back to A Deeper Look with Joe Paiva. With me today is my friend and former colleague, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Dennis Albert. Dennis, when we left off, we had started talking a little bit about the big numbers, right? There's, there's, the U.S. taxpayers have, have funded a number of large initiatives over the last couple of years, all with great intent. I was hoping now we could dig in a little bit and talk about how things like the Recompete Pilot Program or the STEM Apprenticeships Talent Challenge have impacted you know, real people in real towns across across the country. Do you want to share a few stories with us? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. And you're right, Joe. It's it's sometimes hard to translate all these big numbers and and the you know the names of the authorizing statutes and things into like, well, how does this impact real people every day in their lives? I mean, I I do think that you know our our mission is among the best in the federal government. You know, the competitive, locally driven economic development strategies that we invest in truly do help existing businesses to expand. They help to attract new businesses. They support our innovators and our entrepreneurs. And they ultimately, at the end of the day, they help to retain and create new jobs in, in communities across America. And, you know, at the very core of what we do is to bring hope an opportunity to some of the nation's most economically distressed and disenfranchised areas and regions. Um, you know, places that have experienced sudden economic shocks, as well as places that have experienced long-term decline and, you know, never really had the opportunity to recover from, you know, past economic downturns. And, you know, if you, if you think about our programming, it kind of runs a continuum from soft assistance on the planning and technical assistance side to access to capital to kind of brick and mortar infrastructure construction that, that can help communities. So how do real Americans experience this? How do they see this? Well, if EDA comes in and provides a planning or technical assistance grant, I mean, we begin to see hope for a better future in these economically distressed areas. They can begin to envision a strategy that will take them to a place that's different than the place they are today. 
And then, you know, as we begin to move into implementation and, and implement the ideas that are embedded within those strategies, you know, that could take a, a wide variety of different forms. Like maybe it's bringing sewer and water lines to a new industrial park that will house future businesses. Maybe it's constructing a business incubator or an accelerator, or maybe it's working with a, with a historically black college and university uh, institution to create programming for, for entrepreneurship. In all these different cases, communities will, will see activity as we get underway with these projects. And I think, you know, construction uh, uh, projects in particular are, are highly, highly visible in your communities. And, and even before we achieve the ultimate outcome of leveraging private capital investment and bringing new industries and businesses into communities, once we start construction, those are jobs. Those are real jobs that, you know, people are going out to the construction sites and they're working to construct these facilities uh, right away. We're putting Americans back to work. And then let's say we build a, a training facility um, in conjunction with one of our community college partners. And Within that facility, we're immediately training the next generation of workers. We're giving them skills that directly align with the needs of businesses in their regions so that they can have future job opportunities. I mean, that's a really, really powerful thing to be able to take someone that didn't have a job or didn't have economic opportunities and prospects in the future and be able to support their training and development such that they can they can access and take advantage of the jobs that are coming to their communities and their regions. And ultimately, we're creating really powerful economic engines that are going to support these communities. So, you know, in some, I think our work really does directly impact the daily lives of countless Americans and, and really works to strengthen our regional economies so that they can support the businesses and the workers of tomorrow. And in turn, this supports our nation's global economic competitiveness. I mean, one of the, as I was saying, like one of the lessons of the pandemic is that, you know, economic development is important to our health, to our economy, to our national defense. We need robust supply chains and domestic production, you know, to support all of these things. And, and EDA is really at the crux of making that happen. That's amazing. I, I got to say, like, I, I wish kind of I'd asked that question first, right? Because that, <laughs> that is really kind of, I can't help noticing how different it is then we think of traditional EDAs, and I know they're your partners. I'm not going to ask you to talk in any way negative about them, but I think most people see the, the title EDA of the agency, and they might think of those state and local agencies that give loans directly to startups and small businesses to go do things. But you're actually kind of going for the infrastructure that makes those things work. Am I, am I hearing you right? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I mean, one of our critical roles is to try to help to – you know, set the conditions for growth and economic opportunity um, and then execute, you know, alongside and, and in collaboration with our, our state and local economic development partners, but also critically, you know, the private sector. And so we, we work very, very closely with our eligible grant applicants, which include state economic development organizations, uh, cities, counties, uh, nonprofit institutions, institutions of higher education, and others. And by giving them these strategic grant investments, 
you know, of course we have to uh, follow our statutory guidelines and, and we set policy guidelines for areas that we want to focus that investment activity. Those include things like we've been talking about, like do the communities that we're working in reach our, our eligibility criteria in terms of their levels of economic distress? Um, do they align with our investment priorities around achieving more equitable economic development outcomes and, and supporting the next generation of technologically innovative industries, for example, as a couple of examples? And together, I think what we do is we help to create a really, really robust and, and vibrant uh, economy in these, these economically distressed areas and regions. Very cool. So you get to work with the Assistant Secretary, Alejandro Castillo, one of my favorite people, and Secretary Raimundo, one of my family's favorite people. And so I know how driven both those people can be. And 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 I am sure they came to you with priorities and initiatives that they wanted you to chase down. Do you want to share a little bit about what are today's like like right now, if you got a call on that phone today and it was from the secretary's office, what are kind of the things you'd be going up to the seventh floor to talk about? Yeah, well, Joe, I'll, I'll certainly echo the, the sentiments you, you just uh, shared. I am very, very fortunate to to work with a couple of tremendous leaders uh, in the federal government. Uh, Secretary Rondo brings um, incredible passion for the work at the Economic Development Administration as a I think it's a result of her her tenure as governor in, in Rhode Island and, and how she was really uh, a leader uh, on issues of economic development and, and workforce development in particular. Um, and Alejandra Castillo, of course, has this is her her third tour of duty now as a as a political appointee and a, and a dedicated public servant. Uh, and so I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly fortunate to work with these two leaders. And they do bring uh, a lot of passion for this work, but also really high expectations. <laughs> and in terms of our most urgent priorities right now, as we mentioned at the at the top of the call, you know, over the course of the last two years, EDA has invested an unprecedented what four point five billion dollars through the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan Act in pandemic economic recovery funds. And we've done so, I think, in a really, really innovative and creative way that has kind of pushed the boundaries in how we think about economic development within the United States. We have fully embraced the notion of promoting regional industry cluster-based economic development through our Build Back Better Regional Challenge. Um, and we have fully embraced the need to align our workforce development efforts with the needs of business and industry and our workforce through our good jobs challenge as, as two examples of that. Um, and so now that we have awarded all this funding, really now the hard work begins because we have to implement it and make sure that it's successful. Um, and, you know, as stewards of taxpayer dollars, we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that we're overseeing this funding and that it's effectively effectively used. And we also have uh, the need to support the communities that we gave that grant funding to. These are some of the most economically distressed communities in the country. 
Uh, we want to make sure that we're supporting them in their the implementation of this grant funding and that we're providing the technical assistance that they need to be successful. It doesn't do us any good to award this funding if it's not achieving its intended outcomes. So we're acutely, acutely focused on achieving those outcomes. Now, a moment ago, we, we talked about some of the new programming that was coming EDA's way. In this fiscal year, FY23, we'll have $1.6 billion in programming again. This is our fifth consecutive year of having these large transformative supplemental appropriations. And we talked a little bit about like how some of that programming was going to break down between the Stevenson-Widler Act, two new programs, regional technology and innovation hubs, and the Recompete pilot program that we're going to have to do the program design around um, and make sure that we are structuring that new funding in a way that it's going to be impactful and meet the needs that have been outlined by Congress and the objectives of the administration to achieve overall more equitable economic development outcomes for everyone in America. So along those lines, you know, I imagine that having a former investment banker, venture capitalist sitting in the secretary's office, having someone with the kind of experience that you and Alejandro both have in in business development, economic development, how does that impact the people that work at the EDA, right? Not kind of thinking in terms of you have this network of people. It's not like you have a bunch of people working in your office down there on, on 15th Street, right? You got them all over the country, basically. How do the changes, the growth, the impact, the priorities, how does all that you know, affect the people that work at the EDA? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, uh, Joe, and one that's, that's near and dear to my heart as, as the senior career official at EDA and, and the chief operating officer here. Now, EDA was founded in 1965 under the Public Works and Economic Development Act. And I think we've proven ourselves to be both resilient as well as agile and adaptable. Um, we have often adjusted and redefined our priorities, um, but we have remained steadfast and always focused on our commitment to uh, the communities that we serve and supporting national economic development objectives. And, you know, we have been going through a great deal of change and transformation uh, as an agency, as you might expect to use an industry term. If we had been experiencing this kind of growth in the private sector as a small business, we'd be a gazelle. I mean, we'd be flying off the charts, right? But we've been experiencing it in the public sector and the public sector is not always as agile and adaptable as the private sector can be. Um, You know, we have some real constraints to our ability to kind of rapidly scale and evolve to meet these needs. Nevertheless, I think we've been doing a really fantastic job at just that. We have worked really hard to assemble a diverse and larger team of economic development professionals to administer this new programming. And we've brought on exciting new skill sets. You know, we have brought on, you know, team members that have um, years of expertise in the economic development professional through leading public policy organizations, you know, such as the Brookings Institution, as well as colleges and universities across the country to really bolster 
our, our existing you know, core staff and, and helping us to implement um, this programming. And prior to the pandemic, uh, we had a staffing footprint of, of about 160 to 180 professionals across the country. And in two short years, that footprint has expanded to well over 300 professionals nationwide that's supporting this work. That's really, really rapid growth. And when you consider that most of that growth occurred during you know, two years of the pandemic, when, when most of us were, were operating remotely, that presented us with some unique challenges about how do we train new employees? How do we share documents across our IT infrastructure so that we can achieve greater efficiencies in the way that we execute our work? So we have been adapting and and kind of building this plane as we fly it. You know, we've been put we've been bringing on new training specialists, we've been putting new training curriculum in place, we've been evolving our IT infrastructure to meet these evolving mission needs and priorities. And I'm you know, proud to say that because of the strength of our team, and we are a very, very people-centric organization, but because of their Herculean efforts, we've been successful to date. Well, that is a great place for us to take a break. And so we can come back after and talk some more with Dennis Alver, Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to A Deeper Look with Dennis Alvert, the Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. Hey, Dennis, we, we broke off, uh, I think, at a really great point. You were talking about the, the Herculean efforts of your staff to basically uh, manage five times as much grant money and five times as many grants with uh, really only twice as many people. So, uh you're right. From a business perspective, we would call that a exponential productivity gain, right? So to get there, I imagine there was some retraining, some new processes. Uh, you want to kind of tell us about kind of you were starting to get into the impacts that this has had on your people in terms of their day-to-day jobs and kind of what kind of skills and training and all those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think We've, we've been working really hard at this. Uh, I mean, we've had to work hard at this. It's been critically, critically important. And we've undertaken a variety of efforts to, um, you know, to support our workforce as well as enhance diversity. Um, I mean, I think that you know, consistent with our mission to assist the nation's most economically distressed areas and regions, just as we have made like equity, a core tenant of our investment priorities. Um, and, and by the way, we look at equity through the lens of both people and places. We have emphasized the need to make diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility a key priority for EDA as a bureau as well. Um, and we've undertaken a variety of of training to support and, and strengthen our workforce in this regard. 
we partnered with the Partnership for Public Service, which is a, a really wonderful nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization that's that's dedicated to building a better government and a stronger democracy to support a variety of training for our leaders and for our staff. Our employees have been participating in training seminars designed to improve workplace inclusivity, to strengthen continuous learning, and to really provide a safe space for colleagues to better understand each other. Because we know that by building a stronger team, we're ultimately going to be building better program outcomes. So we've we've invested a lot in this, both in our efforts to train existing and new staff, but also um, in our efforts to continue to recruit and bring on board uh, the talent that we need to support both existing as well as new and emerging priorities. So let's kind of talk about talent acquisition just a bit, right? Like you're not only up against hundreds of other public agencies that call themselves economic development agencies, even if they do a slightly different job, but you're also kind of going right up against, you know, all the investment banks in the world, right? All all the venture capitalists. And they're all kind of trying to hire the exact same people, even if they're not doing the exact same work, right? It's that kind of program management analyst. How do you compete? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of those questions that, that definitely keeps me up. I think we have had challenges and we've been up against the same market forces, the same competitive market for talent that everyone has been up against um, since we've started to emerge from, from the pandemic. And as you correctly surmise, we see this, you know, it can be more acute in different areas of the country regionally. It can be more acute in different industry sectors. We are trying to recruit the very best financial talent to help support the implementation of our revolving loan fund program. Construction has been booming uh, across the country, and we're competing against the same public and private sector entities that are pursuing civil engineers to support uh, that construction or um, engineers with technical backgrounds that are supporting the implementation of, of broadband or or new environmental technologies. Part of the way that we're able to compete and bring talent into this organization is through a very deliberate recruitment strategy that focuses on our mission and focuses on our outcomes. Like one of the things that we know from our internal surveying and and discussions with our staff is that they are incredibly mission-driven. They are incredibly focused on the reason that we're here to support the public um, and to support communities that are eligible for our assistance. And we recruit people that that wanna give back and that wanna support those types of of priorities. I I really do think that's one of the things that differentiates us from the private sector. We're not here to make a profit. We're here to support economically distressed areas and communities. So I get that you're kind of pitching to potential talent, the mission of the organization, how does that, like if if we had one of your staff on today, right, can you kind of give us a feel for what they might say is the high point of their day or like why do they come to work? I mean, 
beyond just saying the mission, like any specific stories or personal experiences or, or things like that, 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 that people might be able to relate to? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, staff would probably share, you know, their experiences working at EDA and what it's like, you know, to be able to support this type of work in, in the public interest, the nature of the work, how, We've grown and innovated together as a team to be able to achieve that work. Like we haven't been able to just fall back and rely on doing things the same old way we've also always done them. Um, we've had to innovate and we've had to empower our staff to figure out new solutions so that we could be successful as a team. I, and I'm so, so proud of, that, of them for, for being able to do that. You know, they've really embraced the challenge and, you know, they've found ways to implement our mission um, more efficiently and more effectively than we, than we have ever done before. Like the number of grants being administered per employee over this period of growth in the last four years has just grown exponentially, but they're still, they're still able to achieve year, you know, month after month, year after year our core mission objectives. And I'm sure they would share with you like what it's like to work with these communities and to be able to provide assistance and support them and just how impactful it is to see the outcomes of that work. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm most looking forward to in 2023 and beyond is being able to get out into the field more again, because there's nothing, I mean, it's one thing to be working over video chats and to be working on the phone to review architecture and engineering for a new construction project and to, to monitor the disbursements of that project and to be tracking the progress administratively as we, as we move forward. But boy, there is nothing like getting out in the field and visiting a community that maybe has not been doing as well and has not been thriving to the degree that we know the community is capable of and seeing the transformative effect that EDA's investment has had in changing people's lives, in training them for new careers, in placing them in jobs, and hearing the stories firsthand of what that has meant to their families. And I, I'm confident that our employees would share with you that you know, that's why they're here. That's why they're working long hours. That's why they do what they do. Well, that's fantastic. We're going to have to take another break just for a second, Dennis. I promise this is the last one. We'll be right back with Dennis Alvord, Chief Operating Officer of the Economic Development Administration, in a few minutes. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. We're back with Dennis Alvord, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Development at the Department of Commerce and Chief Operating Officer of the Economic Development Administration. Dennis, we left off talking about how cool it was to work at an agency where you can go out into these places, be it, you know, the backwaters of Texas or coal country or 
inner cities in in the lesser known parts of California, right? I mean, you're literally all over the globe, all over the country. I mean, and uh, and you know, it's funny. I I look, you know, I was looking through my notes, and, and you know, there are places and states where you would not expect, you know, a great welcome for a hi. I'm here from Washington D.C. and I'm here to help, right? And so it was great to hear how that happens and, and how it works. I guess before we go, we got about 10 minutes left. So I wanted to dive a little bit into what are you guys doing very specifically to kind of recruit talent from outside of the traditional areas, right? Like, so I know right now you have a couple openings and they're not just in DC. You have them in Illinois, you have them other places. Like, so you mentioned how you view diversity as not just the people, the place, right? Do you have programs in place specifically to try to get people from outside the Beltway, and and how do you how do you pull those people in? Yeah, I mean we do have an active recruiting strategy, and we have a national footprint that kind of aligns with our mission to support economic development across the United States and in all of our territories as well. So. We operate out of a headquarters office that's supported by six regional offices across the country. Those are in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago, Austin, Denver, and Seattle. And we also have state-based what we call economic development representatives that are located in, in almost every state and territory in the country. And so as we go out to recruit for these positions, we recruit from a broad cross-section and, and we have folks that are located within those regional offices as well as within individual states um, across across the entire country. Well, fantastic. So honestly, Dennis, I think we kind of hit the high points here that I had in my notes and we have about five to 10 minutes left. And so what would you want to like kind of if we're planning the closeout here in real time, right, calling an audible. So with all of the history behind grants management in the federal government and, you know, the, the desire for many years to do it better, and I know Secretary Raimondo comes from this world. She absolutely knows how to measure the performance of her investments, right? How are you measuring the performance of the grantors or the grantees with respect to the money that they've been dispersed? Yeah, I think that's uh, such a critically, critically important question. As I as I mentioned a bit earlier, we do have a fiduciary responsibility to oversee this funding. You know, it's it's taxpayer dollars that we're investing for the American people, um, and we want to make sure that we're getting a good return on that investment. And so we have a variety of different ways that we continually monitor and oversee our now expansive grant portfolio that consists of thousands of grants and billions of dollars in valuation. Among the basic things we do, of course, is to monitor and oversee how we're doing in in obligating that funding and getting it to uh, eligible communities. Once it's awarded, we, we track and monitor the disbursements uh, of that funding to make sure that that the projects are moving forward and that they're being implemented in a timely manner in a in a time frame that is going to work under the, the relevant statutory authorities but then more importantly i think we are monitoring ultimately the outcomes of those investments and we know that when we make an initial investment it 
doesn't change immediately. There's a, there's a lag in time for those investments to take hold and for the economic transformation to incur. And this is particularly true with our construction investments, right? Where we're, it takes time to build things, dig holes, we've got to put up buildings. And, and then once you have those buildings there, we bring the, the companies and the service providers in, all that takes some time to set up. And you know, so typically we see the implementation period for our projects will, will last somewhere between kind of two and seven years. It's a, it's a bell curve. But then once they're implemented and they're up and running for a period of time, we measure the outcomes. Um, and we typically measure outcomes under something called the Government Performance and Results Act or, or GIPRA. And among some of our, our key measures are the number of jobs that have been retained or created as a result of the EDA investment and how much private investment is generated and therefore leveraged for economic purposes within the region. Those are measures that we use for our traditional construction projects. Under some of our innovation programming, you know, we also look at things like new business starts. We look at things like the number of patents that have and, and trademarks that have been issued by entities that have taken advantage of some of our, our programming. But as a result of this new expansion in our portfolio, we're also just today looking at new measures that we can use to assess the efficacy and the impact of things like our, our support for workforce development. So we know that you know, ultimately our objective is to take people who are untrained and to be able to support them and train them and move them into new economic opportunities. So we're supporting systems for workforce development, we're supporting the programming for workforce development, and we're supporting the implementation of that programming. And that includes the wraparound services that are necessary to allow people to be able to participate in the training program. So we're having to come up with new measures to assess how many people are taking advantage of those services. Um, and is that helping them to enroll and stay enrolled in this programming? Are we ultimately getting um, job placements in our intended industry sectors as a result of this programming? So we'll be uh, measuring and assessing all these things, both as we implement through a number of kind of ride along research grants that we put in place, but then also after the fact to see how good a job we did investing these dollars and, and what the outcomes were. So really excited to see you know, what, what types of outcomes we'll be able to achieve with this large new economic development portfolio at EDA. Dennis, thank you so, so much. With that, I think we do have to sign off, but it does sound like a very exciting opportunity for anyone who wants to join the EDA today. And uh, I hope some of our listeners go to, uh, go to USA Jobs and, and look for your organization and sign up for some of those. I hope so, too. It's really been a pleasure to be with you here today, Joe. Thanks for having me. This has been a deeper look at the U.S. Economic Development Administration with the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Dennis Albert. You've been listening to A Deeper Look with Joe Paiva here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search A Deeper Look.